0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss.
1: You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, and today, on election day in America, we're looking at perhaps the most important asset market in the world, the market for American Treasuries. Whatever the results of today's election, its future hangs in the balance.
0: You've basically seen a shrinking down of the capacity of the system at the same time as you've seen a big increase in the number of treasuries and also participants that are interested in trading them.
1: If Joe Biden becomes president, his choice of treasury secretary will reveal his priorities. We size up the front runners.
2: There's a real desire to have a different sort of face at the head of the Treasury. It's a a position that's always been occupied by a white man, and and usually a white man with a career
1: on Wall Street. And increasingly acrimonious partisanship in America has cost many people friends. But what about the cost to America
3: Inc? Bankers probably aren't deliberately penalising firms, but their lack of faith in a president's ability to steer the economy in the right direction can nevertheless hurt companies' bottom lines.
1: The most important asset market in the world is arguably the market for US treasuries. The yield on American government bonds underpins the value of just about every other asset, from other countries' bonds and corporate debt to shares and property. Investors and financiers of all stripes own treasuries, from Chinese pension funds to European hedge funds and American banks. The American government bond market has long been the world's biggest, but in the past few years, it has expanded. And this year, it's ballooned, swollen by the issuance of enormous amounts of debt to support pandemic stimulus.
0: From the perspective of the US government, it's how it funds spending and deficits. And then it's extremely important for basically all global investors. The US dollar is the world's predominant funding currency and that means that basically everyone holds treasuries.
1: Alice Fulwood is our Wall Street correspondent.
0: And the yield that they are paid for owning those treasuries, because it's considered riskless and because the dollar is so dominant, is the global risk-free rate. And it is the benchmark by which every other asset in the world is valued. And because the market for treasuries is so large and so important, and there are so many investors uh, interested in trading treasuries, that typically means that the market functioning is very good. The market is very deep, it's very liquid, and it's very, very easy to transact Treasuries. And so in the eyes of regulators, in the eyes of investors, holding a US Treasury is almost equivalent to holding cash. So
1: at times like this, it's more important than ever that the market for Treasuries functions well and functions smoothly. Has the market been playing its role as investors would want it to?
0: The short answer is no. In two ways, Treasury markets and the markets that sort of surround and fund the Treasury market have seriously malfunctioned over the past year. Even before the pandemic in September of 2019, the overnight repo rate, which is the rate at which you can swap a treasury bond overnight for cash, jumped above 9% as there was a sudden shortage of liquidity. And then in March and April of this year, uh, as panic spread about COVID-19, liquidity in various treasury markets vanished. The bid-ask spread, which is the the difference between what you pay to buy a treasury and sell a treasury, was 12 times greater than normal. If you looked at the sort of yield on munitions, Municipal bonds, which usually is two thirds to 90% of treasury yields, that spiked up to 900% of treasury yields. Any measure of a well functioning market that you could care to look at was very dysfunctional and spiked to previously unseen levels. In both cases, the Fed had to come into the rescue. In September, they bought up some bonds to sort of ease restraints on the banking sector, making it easier for them to lend to those who were in need of repo financing to buy treasuries. And then in March, they stepped up the pace of that bond buying and in particular have hoovered up very short dated treasuries. They sort of became the market maker of last resort for the treasury market.
1: So in the past year, it's gone seriously haywire more than once. Can't really afford for this to happen to the treasury market. What went wrong? What was behind the malfunctions?
0: Most of the arguments focus on the primary dealer system. So primary dealers are a slew of financial institutions that have the right to trade directly with the US Treasury. They act as an intermediary. Anyone that wants to buy a treasury worldwide will probably go to one of these primary dealer institutions to execute their transaction. Now, what's happened since the global financial crisis is that most of these primary dealers are housed within big commercial banks, think JP Morgan, Bank of America, etc. And there have been an increasing number of restrictions on what those banks can do, how many assets they can hold, how much risk they can take. And what that effectively means is that they have shrunk their holdings and their capacity to intermediate these markets down. In times of crisis, there's less liquidity, there's a skinnier backstop when a lot of people are coming in trying to do transactions all at once. You've basically seen a shrinking down of the capacity of the system. And at the same time, the number of Treasuries and the number of people who are interested in trading them has grown. So there's been a lot of issuance, um, in particular under the Trump administration. The Treasury market in 2016 was about $20 trillion. It's now 27. Half of that increase came in the last year.
1: So it's almost as if the capacity of the pipeline has got, has got squeezed just at a time when there's actually more and more stuff being forced through it. Now, as you said, a couple of times in the past... The Federal Reserve has patched up the plumbing, if you like. But are those sort of fixes enough, or does the whole system really need rethinking and rebuilding?
0: There are a whole slew of solutions that range from tinkering to radical rethinkings of the entire system. At one end, there are sort of some bank regulations that seem to constrain bank balance sheets and constrain the ability of banks to intermediate these markets in times of stress. Those could be relaxed or rethought. You could also introduce more primary dealer institutions since the global financial crisis. There's been a rise of of dealers that aren't strictly banks. If there are more and more primary dealers that are different to the traditional ones inside banks, that might ease stress. The most radical proposal would be for the Fed to make its repo facility more permanent. This is a tool that it started using again uh, last September when there was friction in the repo markets. And basically what it would do is it would say that anyone who's holding a treasury, uh, they'll swap that for cash at any time. And so that would make it less likely that there would be this huge volume of treasury transactions that might need to occur in times of stress. And that's something that the Fed could do such that it sort of has a standing solution to market stresses rather than having to do these ad hoc interventions every time things go awry.
1: And the pressure on the system isn't going to go away, is it? Because there's a lot more issuance coming down the pipeline. Whoever wins the US elections.
0: Yeah, so in the short term, it seems likely that there's going to be a lot more issuance. The Congressional Budget Office just came out with long-term projections for where they expect Treasury issuance to go. And essentially, what they say is that the Treasury market will grow from around $27 trillion today to more than $120 trillion by 2050. The primary dealer system is expected to grow much, much more slowly than that. And so what that implies is that in as few as 10, possibly 15 years, that a shock half the size of the COVID shock could be enough to cause the same level of market dysfunction. That would also imply that these shocks would become much more frequent, as well as potentially even worse than what we saw in in March and April.
1: So that's the long-term outlook. What about what might happen over the next few days or few weeks once the result of today's election becomes clear? What might that imply for both the bond market and for stock markets?
0: So the bond market is probably most interested in the immediate amount of issuance that is likely to come from from either president. I think that it seems likelier that Mr Biden might pursue a larger stimulus than Mr Trump would in a second term. And therefore, that will be a focus for for bond markets, just how big a stimulus should they expect. For stock markets, they've had a rough October trading on a lot of uncertainty and the expectations of extreme volatility potentially after the election. And so if we do get a clear victory over the next day or two, rather than over the next few weeks, I think that that resolution of uncertainty is likely to boost share prices probably either way, whoever is victorious. Stock investors will, like most of us, be happy for this to be over. Stocks will only tumble if it looks likely that chaos will reign.
1: Alice Fulwood, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Patrick.
1: Listen to our daily podcast, The Intelligence, on Wednesday for immediate post-election analysis from The Economist's US editor, John Priddo, and our network of correspondents across the country. And of course, John will be back on Friday, with John Fasman and Charlotte Howard in our American Politics podcast, Checks and Balance, to sort the signal from the noise. Between podcasts, you can also follow our rolling analysis at economist.com, And if you're not yet a subscriber, there's never been a better moment to become one. There's a special introductory offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And you can find the link in the show notes on your podcast app. If Joe Biden wins the presidency, there will be a lot of sought after vacancies going in Washington, D.C., With the economic costs of the pandemic mounting, the new team at the Treasury will come under a special scrutiny. Observers will watch Mr Biden's appointments carefully for clues as to how he might govern, and he'll be pulled in different directions. He needs battle-hardened staff who have faced downturns in the past, and he'll have to reflect the diversity of his party in race, gender and ideology. The Democrats' left wing will want to see evidence of commitment to progressive reform, while business leaders will brace themselves for higher taxes and stiffer regulations. Mr Biden's choice of Treasury Secretary, who could perhaps for the first time be a woman, will be read as a message of intent.
2: I think there's a real desire on the part of the Biden team, should they win, to have a a different sort of face at the head of the Treasury. It's a a position that's always been occupied by a white man and and usually a white man with a career on
1: Wall Street. Ryan Avond is our free exchange columnist.
2: So I think they're going to look in a different direction this time around. And and some of the key names that have have been circulated are uh, a number of ex Fed officials, including Janet Yellen, Sarah Bloom Raskin, Elizabeth Warren, who was a candidate in the Democratic primary race, who's senator from Massachusetts, quite a popular populist figure, has also expressed interest in the job. There is a chance that they might look in a different direction and perhaps choose an African-American candidate. It's possible that they might go with Roger Ferguson, who has also served on the Fed in the past. But I think if you stand back and kind of look at what they're going to need to address and the different constituencies they need to satisfy, that that Lael Brainard, who's, who's currently a member of the Fed Board of Governors and who's worked in the Treasury in the past, is the frontrunner.
1: How important is the choice of Treasury Secretary within the context of the broader team of economic advisors to the President, for example? Or how does the Treasury fit into the American political institutional setup? You know, how important is this appointment?
2: Particularly in times of crisis, it's just a crucial position. If you look back at Barack Obama's response to the global financial crisis, for instance, Timothy Geithner's views on how best to shore up the American financial system on how best to enact stimulus, uh, ended up having an enormous effect on the shape of policy. And so I think that given all of the things that are going to be on Biden's plate should he win the presidency, it's going to be one of the most influential and important positions in the administration. So it's going to be watched
1: quite closely. So if Joe Biden wins, your money for the Treasury Secretary's job is on Lael Brainerd. What can you tell us about her background?
2: She's an incredibly accomplished woman. She's had a long and distinguished career in public service. She's what you might call a consummate technocrat, a Ph.D. economist. She uh, spent time working as an advisor during the the Clinton administration, then did some work at at the Brookings Institution, which is a highly respected think tank here in Washington, then served under uh, Barack Obama and his Treasury Department during those crucial early years of the administration after the global financial crisis crisis. Uh, And then he nominated her to serve on the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors. And she's been a very important voice there as the Fed has tried to adjust its strategy and the way that it manages the economy.
1: So I suppose that's the most recent indication of the way she thinks about economics and thinks about economic policy. What do we know from her time at the Fed about how she might behave as Treasury Secretary? Well, it's been a very interesting
2: tenure for her. I think she's shown herself to, to be an independent thinker and someone who's willing to challenge uh, received ideas. It was very interesting to hear her critique of a Fed tightening two or three years ago, and she was arguing that the Fed needed to be aware of, of the way in which its policy affected global financial markets and how that might sort of blow back onto the US so that they needed to be more careful than they might otherwise be when raising rates, which was an interesting argument. She's not a radical, uh, but she has shown toughness when it comes to regulation of Wall Street. She's been pretty adamant that the Fed should not relax requirements on on the big banks in recent years just because the economy has been doing okay. She's pushed to not allow banks to pay dividends during this pandemic crisis so that they can continue to maintain a healthy degree of capital. So I think she's someone who's, who's not a prisoner to dogma, but at the same time, she's still a little bit inscrutable. And I think we don't have the clearest of ideas how she might look at long-run deficit spending or what her attitude might be toward relationships with other countries when it comes to currency policy and things of that nature.
1: When she was in the Obama administration during the crisis, she was liaising with policymakers in Europe. How valuable might that experience be if she came back to the Treasury?
2: Under the Obama administration, she was the key official working with European leaders during the Euro-area crisis. She developed quite a reputation for uh, both fair-mindedness but also toughness, certainly, in dealing with the Europeans. And, and she built up relationships there that I think would be, be quite useful. She also had some experience dealing with currency issues while working in the Obama administration. I think that's one area where the left perhaps is a bit frustrated with her because the Obama administration refused to label China a currency manipulator, but nonetheless, she would enter office if chosen with a deep familiarity already with those issues. And then even before that, her first work in an administration came during the presidency of Bill Clinton. She was his personal representative to the G7 and again had quite a lot of interaction with other foreign leaders. She helped implement NAFTA at the time, and so she's developed a familiarity with trade policy. She has quite a lot of experience, not just with the issue areas, but also with representatives from other countries and with the sort of difficult sorts of negotiations you can face when you're when you're trying to run Treasury in a difficult period.
1: And the left of the Democratic Party would probably be keener on a candidate with, with more anti-corporate credentials. What would they think of her? And who might they prefer if they had the chance to influence a putative President Biden?
2: Well, I think there's no question that the left would prefer to see Elizabeth Warren running the Treasury. Elizabeth Warren has cultivated a reputation as someone who's willing to be very tough with Wall Street, with the big banks, who's very concerned about concentration in industry and would take a tough line on mergers and things of that nature. I think a Biden administration would be wary of appointing an Elizabeth Warren to that position, though, because it might from the outset, make it difficult for there to be a good-natured conversation with people on Wall Street, which is something that you do have to have if you're the president. Another sort of slightly more lefty candidate would be a Sarah Bloom Raskin, I think, whose credentials on the left are a little stronger. But having said all that, I think Lael Brainerd is a candidate for Treasury Secretary, who would, if she were appointed, be broadly acceptable to the left, because of the interest she's shown in improving Fed policy for workers, because of the interest she's shown in, in maintaining tighter regulations on Wall Street. Uh, but at the same time, she's not so overtly hostile to finance that she would, from the outset, alienate the financial
1: world, alienate business leaders. So if Biden's looking to square the circle, then she'd fit that bill.
2: I think that's certainly something that recommends her, in addition to her capabilities as an economist and an administrator, the fact that she sort of hits that sweet spot ideologically and and doesn't, from the outset, antagonize any, any particular group.
1: Ryan Avent, thank you very much. Thank you, Patrick.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
1: And finally, it's no secret that bipartisanship has gone out of fashion in America in recent decades. In the mid-20th century, about a tenth of the electorate were swing voters. These days, just one in twenty would even consider voting for a candidate of either party. This polarisation has been blamed for everything from the decline of trust in government to an increase in family arguments. But what about the economic impact of such discord? Recent research finds that when it comes to corporate borrowing, the cost of partisanship
3: can be counted in dollars and cents. So it seems that partisanship makes borrowing more expensive for American firms, and the effect gets much worse around election time. Our correspondent Beau Franklin has been investigating. Researchers from Indiana University and the University of Rochester in New York looked at almost 3,000 syndicated loans with a combined value of almost $2.5 trillion issued in the last 20 years or so. They looked at the bankers who were in charge of underwriting the loans, who they identified from SEC records, and they then matched those to publicly available voting records to find out those bankers' party political affiliations at the times that the loans were issued. And they then compared to see whether if bankers supported the president in office or opposed them, they charged more or less for companies' loans. How did partisanship show up in the cost of borrowing? So it turns out that bankers whose political beliefs differ from those of the president in office tend to charge companies more to borrow money than those who support the party in control of the White House. And the effect isn't insignificant. On average, the bankers who don't support the President in the White House tend to charge around 7% higher spreads, which is the rate of interest compared with the cost of the money for the banks.
1: And it was interesting to me when we were publishing your story on this research, Beau, that this was about The syndicated loan market, it's not a loan officer in a small bank sitting across from a local business owner deciding whether to lend and how much to charge, but pretty big loans to pretty big companies shared out among several different banks, which each stump up a part of the loan. How much control do individual loan officers have over the terms of their bank's lending in this market?
3: As you say, it's not small fry. The average value of the loans that the researchers studied was over a billion dollars. And although credit committees do have a big say in banks lending, the researchers found that individuals who work closely with borrowers, they call them the lead arrangers, also have significant sway. They have quite a lot of discretion to influence the borrowing terms. They have a kind of personal working relationship with the borrowers too. So even within big banks, they can influence the terms of the loan set. And they found that the effect of partisanship tended to be exacerbated when a banker couldn't easily evaluate a borrower's credit worthiness. For example, if a company had a slightly patchy credit rating and they had to turn to external factors to set the terms of the loan. So this would be something such as how the economy is expected to do in the future. And this comes to the probable explanation for why bankers tend to charge more if they don't agree with the president. The researchers think it's because if they don't see the president as very likely to steer the economy in the right direction, they'll be more pessimistic about the country's economic prospects and therefore much more cautious when it comes to doling out cash to the companies. And how does this
1: effect vary over time? You know, if a lender's politics is affecting the, the cost
3: of the loan, does it vary with the electoral cycle? It does, for sure. It tends to be most noticeable when political polarisation is at its highest in America. And unsurprisingly, this is usually around election time the time at which misalignment in between loan pricing between bankers who do agree with the president and who don't peaked just after Donald Trump was elected in 2016. And at that time, the interest rate spreads charged by bankers who opposed the president rose by 26% compared with a base period of 2014 to 15. And you do tend to see this effect no matter who is in the White House, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican.
1: So does this sort of partisanship tax exist in other fields as well as corporate borrowing?
3: Yes. So another recent paper did quite a similar analysis, looking this time at how credit rating analysts work. And they found that they can also be swayed by their own political beliefs. Over a four-year presidential term, analysts who tend to disagree with the president will often rate the average company about 0.21 notches lower than those who support him. And that's equivalent to a one-notch downgrade for one in five firms. So it does have big consequences. As with the loans, the biggest divergence between Democratic and Republican supporting analysts tends to occur around election times. And again, during the election in 2016, that was when they saw the biggest difference. And as we explained at the beginning of the podcast, we're putting this
1: edition of Money Talks out on election day. We don't know what the result's going to be, nor do American firms who might be wanting to borrow But what's the outcome likely to mean for American firms looking to raise money over the next few months?
3: Well, there's not a lot that American firms can do to hedge against this, really. Elections are going to happen and America is polarised at the moment. And bankers probably aren't deliberately penalising firms. But their lack of faith in a president's ability to steer the economy in the right direction can nevertheless hurt companies' bottom lines. As we've seen, the effect is biggest when polarisation is highest. So after this particularly divisive election, it seems that firms could find themselves paying dearly when it comes to finding new credit. Beau Franklin, thank you very much. Thanks, Patrick.
1: And thank you for listening to Money Talks. If you enjoy what we do... Please take a moment to leave us a review or rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps us immensely. I'm Patrick Lane, and in London, this is The Economist.